It's our final look at Romans chapter 11 before we move into chapter 12. That's coming up next on Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard. Greetings and welcome to today's broadcast of Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard from Valley Bible Church in Hercules. Today we have our final look at Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 33, our series called Israel's Past, Present, and Future, and it's called What in the World is God Going to Do with Israel? That question has plagued the minds of many throughout the ages here in the church, especially ever since the cross. We have some answers from Romans chapter 11. Join us. Here's Pastor Phil with today's program. He is fulfilling his plan for the Gentiles. And this word fullness, it's used in Acts 15, that Simon says God must get out for himself a people among the Gentiles. Then he will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David. It was used in Luke 21 when Jesus said, Jerusalem shall be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. I asked the first congregation this question, and they didn't do too good, quite frankly. Let me ask you, is the Jewish state still being trodden underfoot by the Gentiles? What flies over the country? Uh, A British flag, American flag, what kind of flag flies over the land? What is it? Star David? But they've always had a flag flying over it with the Star David, right? When did they get that flag up? 1948. David Ben-Gurion. The United Nations. Finally, the British released their men, their blockade of the uh, Mediterranean and entrance to Israel. And they became a state. And that day, 40 million Arabs declared war on a million and a half Jews. And they said, we will drive you into the Mediterranean. And it's the same thing Hamas says. We cannot negotiate a treaty with Israel because a jihad says they must be driven into the Mediterranean for the land is ours. Now, imagine the United States having a power that is 40 million to 1 million. How long could you keep the invaders out? 1948, Gentile rule of the land ended at that time. It could go back, but so far God has let the Jews rule that land. So that's something that may say the time of Gentile power and domination over Israel may be at, started an ending in 1948. And then God is fulfilling the fullness of the Gentiles, which means... God is going to save the exact number of Gentiles he wants to save that will make that fullness complete in his mind. And when that last Gentile that he's determined to make up the church, he's going to end that Gentile era, and boom, I think the church will be caught away, and he's going to resume dealing with Israel again. Because look what he's going to do. I'm going to remove the hardening in the future. This hardening is just in part 
until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Then what are you going to do? And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Right now, Christ dwells in the heavenly Zion, according to Hebrews 12. But the scripture says he's going to pay a visit to the earthly Zion when he comes back to deliver Israel. You need to do this with me. Turn to Zechariah 12. Zechariah, nearly the last book of the Old Testament. Nearly. It's not right there. Zechariah. Okay? Tell me when you This is a Bible sword drill. Tell me when you found it. Good. Good, good. Now I want to just read something. All Israel shall be saved. What does this mean? All Israel in history? No. No. At a future time in history, at some point of time in history, in the future, and I believe it's at the second advent of Christ, when he comes back to the earth, God is going to save the nation of Israel so that you could say all of Israel was saved. Not every individual in it, maybe, but the entity will be saved. And he will remove every rebel among the nation, but he is going to save the nation. Look what he says in Zechariah, speaking of the last days of Israel. I'm going to read quick. Notice verse 2, 12, 2. I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her. When does this happen? In the tribulation at the battle of Armageddon, the nations of the earth will come as one people under Antichrist to get rid of Israel once for all. I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day, I'll strike every horse. I'll keep a watchful eye over the house of Judah. The people will say in Jerusalem, they will say, we are strong because the Lord Almighty is our God. And he goes on to say, I will save Judah. Then he comes down to verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Watch this. Now listen. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great like the weeping of Hadan Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. And what is he saying? When the nations gather together to destroy my people, even to the city of Jerusalem, I am going to come. And I said in Acts, as I've left the Mount of Olives, so shall my foot touch the Mount of Olives. And he's going to say, I am going to intervene when they're getting ready to destroy my people in Jerusalem. And at that time, as I descend from the heavens, I will show the Israelites that are on the verge of extinction, and they will look up, and they will see a crucified Messiah, and they will recognize the pierced hands. And at that time, God 
perform spiritual conversion of those who see Messiah, and they break out mourning and weeping. A a weeping that is so great that you won't be able to contain it. They'll begin to weep. This is our Messiah, our deliverers, and they will actually ask him, where did you get those prints? Where did you get these wounds? And he would tell them, I got them in the house of my friends. He goes on to verse chapter 13. He's going to do a national cleansing. A fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. And then he goes on to say, I will get rid of every false prophet, every false person. I will cleanse the nation of all the rebels. Then he goes down, verse 8. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. I understand as he comes down, many will see him, they will mourn. He will begin to execute judgment, and according to Ezekiel, he will cleanse out every rebel among the people of Israel as one counts sheep. And he said, I will count them, and I will remove the rebels. And here it sounds like two-thirds of the people are rebels. I will destroy them. The one-third will be delivered, and I will refine them. In chapter 14, the day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and the holy ones with him. This is Revelation 19. He's coming back and the armies of heaven. The Lord in verse 9 will be king over the whole earth. God's going to bring a plague on the... Look at verse 12. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, men will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. Each man will seize the hand of another, and they will attack each other. Judah, too, will fight at Jerusalem. And he goes on. Then the survivors from the nations will be the ones that will go up to Jerusalem every year to worship. There is coming a point in prophetic history that the nations will gather against Jerusalem, gather against God's people Israel, and they will seek to extinguish them because when the Antichrist sets up his image and commands all the earth to bow and that he will govern economics by his number 666, all Jews will be running for their life for they will be extinguished from the earth except God sends his son back to Jerusalem. He touches the Mount of Olives. A valley is created. The remnant are able to escape and get out. He kills the two-thirds of the rebels. And that same day, a national conversion will take place as they weep and mourn for him they pierced. 
It is overwhelming what he's going to do so that Paul says, don't you give up on Israel for God has set a date and a time in which he will save all of the nation at that point in time and there will be an Israel forever. God is not done. So you Gentiles, be warned. Don't be arrogant about your blessing. Don't be conceited that we have something that our neighbor doesn't have. Let us not be anti-Semitic. The, grace, the, the worst anti-Semitism in the world is the refusal to share the gospel with a Jew. Hear me. I went to an in-gathering meeting for Jews for Jesus, and one of the great plights they suffer in their ministry. Many people do not like Jews for Jesus because they're too aggressive. They're too in your face. They're too evangelistic. Uh, they know that Jews won't be saved through friendship evangelism. You've got to do more than buy them coffee. You've got to talk about the most offensive subject in the world. Is Jesus the Messiah? And when I'm there at this conference, one of the greatest things going on against them is other evangelicals are saying, we need not evangelize Jews. They will make it to heaven anyway. There's another way other than them coming through Messiah. That's anti-Semitism. That's damning a whole people. What would you do if you met a Jewish neighbor? Would you clam up and say, oh, they're God's chosen people, so I won't say anything about Christ? That's the worst thing you could do. That's the worst thing you can do. That is to let them go to hell without any intervention. Here's Paul, the great evangelist. I'm bleeding all over the Roman Empire talking to Gentiles and Jews. But I start with the Jews. They kick me out of the synagogue. And then I go preach down by the riverbank to the Gentiles. No, the gospel goes to Jews first, then to us. I, I lament my lack of burden for the Jewish people. I thank God we've got Oded and Bimini in Boston. I thank God for Dave Brickner. I thank God for Moshe Rosen, who uh, was disinherited in a day when he told his family he was a believer, kicked out of the family well, kicked out of the family business, and in a day turned into a vagabond, as it were, that he might make Christ known in the early 60s. How, how much concern do we have with what God's going to do with Israel? I'm going to tell you right now, before God, you weren't there. I thank God for the Bible teachers I had in my early Christian life that said there's a future for Israel. God's not through with them. And you know what that encourages me? He's not through with you either. And he can keep his promise. To, he made a promise all the way back here that he's still going to keep up here. Did you know what? God's made me promises, and some of them have not yet been kept. They haven't been fulfilled. Hold on. Hold on. He may seem to be slow, but he'll be right on time. God will keep his word. He will keep his word. The word of God has not failed. And us, let me say this to you. The greatest enemy of your life is two things. 
and they both sleep together. These are the ranked sins. These are the two greatest sins. And matter of fact, you can have them and we will never discipline you. You won't ever get excommunicated for them. And that is arrogance and unbelief. No one's ever been disciplined in this church for arrogance. It's an inside sport that you go without discipline. But pride and unbelief destroyed Israel. It destroyed, it would destroy these Gentile believers if they've developed an elite club in the Roman church there. We've got it. You guys are out. Because you see, pride always looks to itself. What I am, what I've got, I'm self-sufficient. I'm the best there is. I'm in love with me. And that always, pride always feeds unbelief. That's why atheism is so popular. When you're full of pride, the only one you can really afford to worship is yourself. And you fire God and you worship yourself. You always make an idol to your own image. And so I can't trust God while I'm overwhelmed and impressed with how important I am, how strong I am. And God said, these two things emptied heaven of one-third of the angels. This same spirit is what has turned many Protestant churches into living mortuaries. They have become proud with their possessions. They've become proud. They've kicked out the theology of a Wesley. They've given up bloody religion. They've given up Christ. They've given up the inerrant word. My word, in my opinion, is as good as what the Bible says. I don't believe the Bible's the word of God. I'll ordain whoever I want. I don't care what their gender is. I don't care what their sexual preference is. We've already thrown out the Bible. And so I want to ask you, what condition is Gentile world in? When I just look at their church leader, the Anglican church, far astray, that part of their own fellowship out of Africa have broken away because the England Anglican Church has bought into liberalism. The African Anglican Church still believes God and believes the Bible. I see churches throughout my life. I watch them. I see churches in Methodist circles. I watch what's happened to the Presbyterian Church USA. And I, I'm ingrated to some great Presbyterian teachers. I love James Boyce. I love Donald Gray Barnhouse. I love some of these great Benjamin Warfield, some of the greatest minds theologically. But you see people that pretty soon, uh, our arrogance, we, we get full of ourselves. We've lost all outside compassion. We're not concerned about what happens to these Jews, these people, this group. And all of a sudden, we're all into us. Us, us, and we begin to build a shrine to ourselves. And he says, you will not stand. You will not stand in the place of divine blessing unless you stand there by faith, not arrogance, not pride. Let me say, Valley, hear me. I try my best not to brag about us as a church. I try to brag about God. I've been through some storms in this church. I know we could be history within three months. We could be empty. We could be has-beens. And we could all be saying, what done happened? Pride, unbelief, conceit, 
arrogance instead of humility, dependence, prayer, saying, I'm just thankful I get to drink from the cup of blessing. I'm not the best there is. We're not, God forbid that we're an elitist group. We ought to say we're the wild bunch that grace got into the tree. We're the wild folks that God grafted in through Christ. God cut a, a, a wound in the side of Christ, and that's when I got grafted in. That's humility, because God has determined whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, whether you're a church, whether you're a family, he will judge arrogance. He will judge conceit. He hates it because he lost the human race over it, and he lost one-third of the angels over it. He doesn't want to lose us. We stand only by faith, and you can tell when a man is walking by faith. There is a humility about them. You always know who someone's hanging out with. The proud never hang out with God. It's only the humble man that can stand to be in God's presence because you cannot remain proud and remain in God's presence. And I see pride in churches. I see competition at times. I see pride among races, pride in even genders, economics, any front that we could be proud, one-upmanship. Oh, I'll tell you what we're the best at, and that's failing. That's what we're the best at. The best thing we're really good at is failing, sinning, being cocky. Acting like we invented the church. No, no, no. I'm going to tell you, I thank God. Just in my own roots, I thank God for the people I first met God with. I don't know if they believe half the stuff I preach, but I met God with them. Guess what? They're going to heaven, and they, never, they can't even spell Calvin. Never heard of him. But they're going to heaven. Don't be cocky. When I was among them and I began to learn theology that would bring me out, you know what my biggest problem was? Don't let knowledge puff me up so as to despise them. God will not make you despise one branch of his church. They may have their difficulties, their problems, just like us, but we've not been called to despise any of the people of God, even if their labels are different right? Because I know a lot of folks with the right label, but they're an empty can. But it says on their hunts, there's just nothing in it. But boy, they got the right label. Ooh, I'm a, I'm a. Then I always ask, are you a Christian? I heard your label. Is there any content? Spurgeon was asked what he was. He said, well, I'm a Baptist preacher in London. I'm a Calvinist by conviction. I'm a this and that. But he said, if you ask me what my favorite term is, I'm a Christian. I love the Lamb. Let me tell you, let us pray for Israel. And he goes on to say at the end of the chapter, guess what? The mercy that got you Gentiles in is going to be the same mercy that restores Israel. And the deliverer is going to come and in a point in history, I don't even have to know the exact date or all the events. I just take God at his word. At some point, a future generation of Jews, whenever Christ comes, he's going to turn upside down Judaism and he's going to save all of Israel.
What an amazing thing. That's the future for Israel. Not abandonment, but restoration to the full plan of God. So let us pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Let us pray that these people will come back to the God they've been stumbling over. This is Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard, and you're listening to our series called Israel's Past, Present, and Future, taken from a larger set out of the entire book of Romans. As we close out our time together here today on Truth For Today, we would remind you that copies of the series are available for $15 or more. It's an eight-CD set that we're making available to you when you ask for it by name, Israel's Past, Present, and Future. Now, if you would like the entire 47-sermon CD set out of Romans, the entire book of Romans, that's available for a gift of $100 or more when you contact us at 855-833-9864. Your donations are all tax-deductible, and they go to further the ministry here on KFAX. Please remember that. These are donations that we use directly in conjunction with the radio broadcast to make sure that it continues here on KFAX. So bear that in mind as you contact us for these resource materials, or if you're feeling led just to be a sponsor and a supporter of the radio broadcast, we'd love to hear from you as well. TFT sustainers are those who receive our quarterly newsletter, a once-a-year special gift, and you also have access to Take a Break. It's Pastor Phil's weekly video devotional. And it's all available for those of you who come to us saying, yes, I'd like to be a part of the ministry. I'd like to be a TFT sustainer. No gift is too small. No gift is too large. We'd love to hear from you today. Would you call us? Again, the phone number is 855-833-9864. Thank you so much for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together for another broadcast of Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard. Phil Howard.